Amen. Well, good morning. It's good to see everybody. Good morning. Come on, y'all. Good morning. It's good to see you. Thanks. <laughs> go ahead and grab your Bibles. Let's go to the book of Colossians. We are, we're going to take a, a pause on the book of Acts, which we're studying through on Sunday mornings, and we're going to look at a few verses in the book of Colossians. We'll be in chapter 2. Uh, we'll have the verses up here on the TV, and I'm going to do a shorter message this morning, just somewhere around 20 or 25 minutes before we sing to close off our time. Um, what a sweet joy it is to be able to hear stories, to be able to celebrate with um, individuals and and really those who are part of our family, our family of faith. And, and so I hope you were encouraged and spurred on just a greater love for, for God because he's worthy of our, our love and affection. And let's read in Colossians chapter 2. We're going to read verses 9 through 16. And, and you'll see in just a moment it, it says something about baptism. And here's what I want to do this morning. Uh, I just want to remind many of us of what baptism is all about to stir your your heart more and more to love God. And then for some of you, maybe to understand for the first time your need for Christ as well as the significance of what baptism means. There might be some of you in this room that you've never been baptized. Maybe you were baptized at a point where you didn't really understand what was going on. And, and one of the steps that God will have you take is to respond by being baptized yourself. We'd love to be a part of that celebration with you. Uh, but for a lot of us, maybe it's just uh, being reminded of sweet truths that will by God's grace, never grow old to us as we continue to walk with, with God in this life. So Colossians chapter 2, verses 9 through 16, why don't you read with me? This is God's word. It says, For in him, in Christ, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in him, who is the head of all rule and authority. In him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh, by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God, who raised him from the dead. And you, who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands." And this he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him or in Jesus or through his cross. And so this, this book, like many in the New Testament, is a short letter written to a particular church in this town called Colossae. And one of the things that was happening in Colossae is that the believers were they had false teachers that were coming in and particularly trying to uphold for them this notion that, that to, to be close to God, to know God, you had to achieve this special wisdom. It's called Gnosticism. Part of that as well was uh, their picture that Jesus wasn't really God. He was just some strange mystical combination of spirit and flesh. And so Paul, in this moment, in verse 9 that we just read, kind of goes to the jugular on, on that notion. And he says that Jesus is the fullness of God in bodily form. Now, why is this significant to baptism? Well, if Jesus is God, then he deserves allegiance. He deserves for us to respond as if he truly is God in the flesh. That he's not just someone that we know about. And I refer back to Casey's testimony a little bit. And many of you can maybe bear witness to this in your own life, is that we can grow up years, decades even, knowing a whole lot about Jesus. 
but never actually know Jesus. Never actually see him as like, this is God. Jesus is God in the flesh, and as a result, he deserves my submission to his authority. And that's the picture in the scriptures, is that Jesus deserves my reliance and my wholehearted submission to his kingship. Not merely possessing knowledge about him, but having an accurate, saving knowledge of him as God in the flesh, who alone is worthy of allegiance and worship. And so, Jesus is the one, he's God in the flesh, and we have been filled. If you're a Christian, the picture here is that you've been filled in and through him. So this picture of being filled is, is actually the idea of being completed. And you could say it this way, when you have Christ, you are complete. When you have Christ, you have everything that you need. And so in, in a life, and over the course of humanity, humanity is given to, from the beginning, scrambling into creation, trying to find people and places, promises, solutions, supposed solutions to make us complete, to make us feel whole, to bring about what we feel like might be some source of rescue or refuge. And the picture in the Bible is that Jesus is the only source. And when you have Christ, you're complete. He's filled you up completely. You lack nothing in the truest sense spiritually. And going back to an interaction that Jesus had in John chapter 4, Centuries ago, he's at a well with a woman who doesn't know him. And he draws from the picture of this well. He's like, everybody who drinks from this earthly well and this water in this well, every single one of them, without exception, will grow thirsty again. Every single person who drinks from this world will get thirsty. But whoever drinks of the water that I provide him from his innermost being will flow rivers of living water welling up to eternal life. When you have Christ, you have everything that you need. When you have Christ, you are complete. Even if the earth in all of its form passes away, as Psalm 73, 26 says, God, you are the strength of my heart and my portion forevermore. There's no need to look to other places, to other people, to other supposed promises for completion to be filled up. There's also this picture of headship, that we're filled in him. He's the head of all rule and authority. So his rule is over all, all rulers, small case R, all authority, small case A. Every supposed ruler and authority falls under the supreme headship of King Jesus, every single one. And we'll go back to that at the end. But there's one just soul-securing truth I give you here, is if you have trusted in Christ and he is your savior, because he is your head and we collectively are the body of Christ, that there's no one, there's no thing, there's no ruler or authority that can snatch you out of his hands. Never. That he will finish what he started in you. He's the head over everything. There's no one stronger than him. Jesus said, my father is stronger than all, and no one can snatch you out of his hand. And what the father gives the son, he will raise up on the last day. It's as sure as done. And when you have Christ, you're complete. And we see that testimony in the seven, well, the six people who gave testimony in the video just a little bit ago. And then we launch into this section that, that begins to give the picture of baptism in some specific ways. In verse 11, 
says that in him, in Christ also, you are circumcised with a circumcision made without hands. And this can be a little bit confusing. It's kind of peculiar. But in the Old Testament, circumcision for men was this covenant sign that you belong to the family of God. Baptism now is a corollary, is a sign of the new covenant family of God. That you're baptized, as it were, to identify with King Jesus and with his people. But not only that. There's this, there's this being united with Jesus. So if you can picture the water, if you're here to witness it, if you baptize yourself, the picture with the water is when you go into the water, there's this being united with Jesus in his death. So you go all the way under, as if you're going all the way into the tomb of Jesus with him, united in his death. And when you come out, it's as if you're being raised with Christ as well. So there's a spiritual way in which we die. Like we die to self-reliance and self-righteousness, self-sufficiency, self-satisfaction. We die to those things. There's an old manner of life that just like circumcision, it may be a little graphic, cuts off a piece of physical frame. And what happens in the, the inner circumcision of the heart is that there's an old life that's cut off. It's put away. This picture is you take off the old uniform and you throw it away. It's dead to you. And we see this picture in John chapter 11. Many of you have heard the story of Lazarus, a friend of Jesus, and he died. Jesus seems to delay going to him. He knew he was sick so that he would die and Jesus could raise him from the grave. So here's the picture. Jesus is there. They're hesitant like he's been there four days. The body's going to smell. So Jesus prays. He prays to the Father. And then he says these things with a loud voice, says, Lazarus, come out. And the man who had died came out, his hands and feet bound with linen strips and his face wrapped with a cloth. And Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. So here's the picture in the Bible that for Christians is that for those who are in Christ, we're a new creation, old things have passed, new things have come. So think about Lazarus' position when he came out of the grave. He was covered in grave clothes. He was wrapped in cloths that signified his death. And he needed other people to unwrap him. So let's take the illustration a little bit farther. So just imagine this. Lazarus is rescued from death. He comes out of the grave. He takes his grave clothes that just came off of him. And he stuffs them in a backpack to carry around with him the rest of his days. Until he has to do his dying all over again, which he did. But just imagine by and by over the course of his life, he grabs some strips of his grave clothes out of his bag and he puts them on as if they still are appropriate or fitting for the new life. And those around him would say, that's ridiculous. Like, it's incongruent for the new man to put on the clothes of death. It shouldn't be that anyone alive from the dead would want to wear the cloths of the grave. But that's what we so often do. This old manner of life, it's sticky to us. This old form of our ways, our perspectives, our pursuits, we want to go back to them, pull them out as if they're appropriate for the new man. And the picture of the Bible is that if you're in Christ, that you're a new creation. Old things have passed. New things have come. And so significant is the change, and you probably heard this verse, the two of the hyper-religious man, Nicodemus, Jesus said this. He says, unless you're born again, you won't get to the kingdom of heaven. 
which implies this. The first time we were born, we were born wrong. Something was wrong with us when we were born the first time. So significantly wrong, it takes a whole new birth for us to be made right with God and to be a part of his family. And so there's no more for the Christian digging up the old body of flesh because like there's no life there. That's, that's the clothes of the old Jew. That's what you see in Ephesians and Colossians. Put off the former manner of life that used to be yours when you walked in ignorance and in your flesh, but now you're new in him. So put on the new man, which is being conformed to the image of Jesus. You're not dead, you're alive, you're free. Why are you trying to walk back into prison when you've been given full pardon in Jesus? That's the picture of the Christian, the Christian life. Not perfectly, but by degrees over time, growing in likeness to Jesus and our pursuit being heavenward and desiring more and more to look like him. We're united with him in his death and also in his resurrection. Through faith in the resurrected Jesus, the Christian is alive, like inwardly, spiritually, permanently, forever alive. A supernatural change, which you might have heard from the testimonies, it's not, a, it's not brought about by you trying to string together the best number of days, doing the best number of things for as long as you can. The only place that will lead you to is destruction because none of us could ever measure up to the perfect standard of God. Every single one of us have broken God's law. And a sweet blessing of the gospel is that Jesus accomplished for you that which you could never accomplish for yourself. He lived the perfect life you could never live. He perfectly fulfilled every single ounce of the law that you and I have consistently broken. And through faith in his work, we're united with him in his death and united with him in his life. And Romans 6, 3 through 5 says this. And kind of going back a little bit before I read this section, one of the pictures of grace in the Bible, in Romans chapter 6, says this. So grace is, is the undeserved gift of God. Mercy is, being, is having withheld from you what you deserve, namely the judgment of God. Grace is being given everything that you don't deserve. And so the picture is this, is that, that where sin abounds, gr the grace of God abounds all the more in Jesus. That's the wonderful, sweet reality of the gospel is where our sin and its abounding nature seems to come like with such force, like the shadow it seems is going to overtake us, is that the abounding nature of grace becomes all the greater to cover up our shame and our sin. But here's the challenge. The human heart says this. Well, if that's the case, if my sin, when it gets bigger, just makes the grace of God bigger, then why don't I just continue to sin just to make the grace of God seem big? That's the question that Paul addresses in Romans chapter 6. And he says this in response, may it never be. May it never be. Because how, how can you who died to sin still walk in it as if it belongs to you and it's fitting for the new man? May it never be. And then he says these words, do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death, we go under the water, Baptized inwardly, outwardly expressed through water baptism. We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. 
For if we've been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. So hear me when I say this, is when Jesus rose from the grave, he never returned. He never returned. And for the believer, for you, don't try to return to the grave. Don't try to put on the old clothes. They don't fit you anymore. Like you're new in Christ. If you're in Christ and you're complete in him, you're growing in his likeness. And those things and the moments where we're tempted or we do put them on should leave a sense of incongruence. Like this doesn't match. It doesn't fit the new man or the new woman. I've got new clothes now that look a whole lot more like Jesus than they do the world. We've been buried with him. We've been made alive with him. Ephesians 4 says, put on the new self, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. And then Paul goes on to say, and you, all of us, every single one who are dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him. Every single one of us is spiritually bankrupt apart from Christ. Like we're dead and we need God to make us come alive. And he's done that through faith in the work of Jesus. And how particularly has God made us alive? He's forgiven us all of our sins. And so the end of verse 13, he's forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling out this record of debt that stood against us, having nailed it to the cross. So here's the picture. And I'll kind of finish with this and just one other short comment. The picture in the Bible as it relates to sin in our own life is if you can think of the Ten Commandments. So I want you to think of all ten of those commandments like a person in a courtroom raising their hand to testify against you and against me. And the Bible gives this picture is that every last one of them, all ten, raises their hand to say, yep, he's broken me. Yes, in fact, he's broken me as well. And all ten to the number, the unanimous voice commend that we have broken the law of God. And so the picture here in this text is that all of those wrongdoings, what's wrong with us in our our human heart, become like a certificate of debt that stands against us, that commends our, our condemnation. But here's the good news in the gospel is that Jesus became that certificate of debt. Everything that was wrong about me, all of my wrongdoing, as if it was balled up in the person and work of Jesus, he goes to the cross becomes in his flesh my debt, your debt, and has taken it out of the way. How? Because it was nailed to the cross. I shared this a couple weeks ago. It's just in a matter of hours, the punishment that would have taken an eternity to pour out on me was levied upon Jesus as he hung on the cross. Every single drop is taken out of the way. My debt is paid, it's finished, and I get to be free, I get to be complete. And the pattern of my life now is to submit wholeheartedly, passionately to Jesus as my king and as my treasure. And this last statement, which seems, can seem like a little bit of a random tag on at the end, says he disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him, in Christ, or in his cross. The picture is this. is that Jesus completely and forever 
stripped of power all of the rulers and authorities that would seek to undermine and take away your relationship from God. There's a picture given of the, the devil in the Bible as the accuser of the brethren. Just picture this. It's what the Bible tells us, is that day in and day out, he whispers accusation against the people of God. They don't deserve it. They can never recover from this. They don't, they don't love you. You can imagine like all the whispers day in, like constantly wafting like to the throne of God. So what comfort do we have? Because Jesus is alive, he will always live to make intercession for you. There will never be a moment where those accusations can overcome the blood of Jesus Christ, ever. And he triumphed over them. How did he do it? Through his own shame. Jesus was put to open shame for those who deserve their own shame. He was quite literally stripped naked. His back opened up with whips. And he went to a Roman cross and died in your place. And he took on your shame and your guilt. And he triumphed through his shaming. So that all of us who actually deserve the shame can now be more than conquerors through him. And there's no one who can take away the life that Jesus has given his people. Amen? And the life that he gives, that's why we proclaim what we did out on the lawn. This newness of life, that the same spirit that raised Jesus from the dead gives life to our mortal bodies, allows us to walk in newness of life. And we say until the end, forevermore, because we believe he'll keep us. That'll hold us fast until the end. That that which he started in us, he'll in fact complete and perfect in every single last one of us. And if you've never trusted in Jesus, please just hear my words as a, a clarion plea for you. Trust him while you still have time. Because there will be a day you'll meet him face to face. And you'll either be clothed in your own rags of self-righteousness, which will be woefully insufficient to meet the God of heaven, or you'll be clothed in the perfection of Jesus. It will be one way or the other. So trust him today while you can. And for those of you who have, you put your trust and your faith in him, then I pray that today would just be a sweet fuel for your encouragement. You think back on your own story, like your own baptism, and just marvel at how good God is to us, along with Mike, that we just say, I'm grateful. I thank God that I get new life. I thank God that I get to be a part of his family, that I used to be a stranger, an alien. Now I'm called a son or a daughter. I used to be blind to the things of God. Now they're alive to me when I see them. And maybe some point today, you just quietly and humbly just sit before him and just say, I'm grateful, thankful for everything that you've done. Thank you for keeping me until the end. God, we, uh, we marvel at who you are and what you have done. And we want to see more. God, we want to see more lives change. It's the reason that we exist. Uh, we don't exist to, to put on church services as much as it's a joy to be here and celebrate together. Lord, the whole purpose of our being here until you return or we get to be with you in heaven is you've given us a job to do, to minister reconciliation to whoever would, would be in our path, in our community, in our city, in this world. And so we pray for more and more people to come to saving true faith in the Lord Jesus. 
not just a knowledge about him, but an experiential knowledge, a saving knowledge of him as the one who alone is deserving of our allegiance and our affection and our very lives. Where we have failed, God, we confess and we ask and, and throw ourselves upon Christ again for forgiveness. And we're grateful that when we confess that you're faithful and just through Jesus to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And I pray as your people that we be passionate to look more and more like Christ in our lives. That we be specific about the areas that we need help in and accountability in. We need community for. Because even as we see in Lazarus, like he needed other people to take off his grave clothes. And we need people with us helping us to by and by to release the shreds of the grave that want to hang on to us and cling so tightly to us. And so I pray that you'd help us be committed to one another in this journey as well. Uh, we love you. Uh, we thank you for who you are, for what you have done. And we say this morning that it's only by the grace of God, through Christ, Christ alone, by faith alone, that we have been saved and rescued and we stand forgiven today. It's in his name I pray. Amen. Let's go.